Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Deke Hager. And I'm Brandon Blewett. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, May 22nd, 2023. Later in the program, we have part three of an ongoing series from environmental correspondent Zero Rose. He speaks with eco-architect and sustainability pioneer Bill Brown. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, that's June Taylor from Community Kitchen, a Bloomington nonprofit feeding hungry kids, seniors on a fixed income, and anyone else on a tight budget. She'll explain how you can make a difference later in the show on a new episode of Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. But first, your daily headlines. At the Bloomington City Council meeting on May 17th, Assistant Director of Planning and Transportation, Beth Rosenbarger, gave a report on a corridor study being done on College Avenue and Walnut Street. So why are we conducting a corridor study? In summary, I would say safety, accessibility, use of public space, community goals, and adopted plan recommendations. But guess what? I'm diving into each of these. Slide. So along the stretch of corridor, which I'll talk about more, is the bypass to Allen Street. It's about four and a half miles total of street. There are about 150 crashes each year. So that um, is 150 motor vehicle crashes every year along these important streets in our community. I think a lot of people who experience this space uh, are willing to tell you the speed limit is 20 on both College and Walnut for most of it uh, in the corridor area, and we're pretty confident people ex- exceed the speed limit in these locations. Slide. So we are looking to improve safety. When we look at streets and how they're serving us, this is the intersection of College and 11th, and it is about 60 feet to cross the sidewalk there. Uh, and even if you said we're going to keep the three, two through lanes, two turn lanes, and a bike lane. There are ways to design that space differently to make the pedestrian crossing shorter. So every space where pedestrians are crossing an intersection and uh, exposed to automobiles is a conflict space and a space where you can have uh, crashes. Also, when we look at traffic signals and how traffic signals are timed, the pedestrian crossing time is usually, it is one of the dependent variables that determines what a signal phase and signal cycle can be because it is timed based on how long it takes a person to cross the street. So counterintuitively, uh, or maybe I guess uh, win-win is when you make pedestrian crossing distances shorter, it is both safer for pedestrians and can improve signal timing and signal turnover because you've now reduced how long a signal phase has to be. Beth Rosenbarger explained why they are looking into the corridor study and highlighted certain aspects that make this necessary. Why are we conducting a corridor study? Um, along these two streets, we have in, an inaccessible pedestrian network and an incomplete pedestrian network. This is an image um, with Miller Showers Park on the right side of the image facing south, and on the left side are private properties. It looks almost like it's a sidewalk, but that's a dirt path worn into a property um, on the on what is the east side of the street there. Slide, please. 
This is an area um, on South College, just south of First Street. It's kind of hard to tell, but this is a driveway, and that's the sidewalk, and they're just standing curbs. So anyone who's using a wheelchair, um, an assistive mobility device, or somebody with a stroller might be able to get by, but uh, that's an inaccessible sidewalk, and somebody has to go into the street. Next slide. And you might say, well, they could cross the street and use the sidewalk on the other side, but there isn't sidewalk on the other side in this location. And uh, also in the vicinity, this is Walnut facing west. Uh, the closest, uh, very close destination to here is the Beeline and Hopscotch Coffee. And there is not actually a complete sidewalk path to get from the intersection of Walnut and Dodds to the Beeline and Dodds. Um, I've heard about this from multiple people in the community, and that is a very challenging section to cross. A lot of people end up sprinting across the street at the turn on Dodds. She outlined what the corridor study parameters are and clarified exactly what is studied when looking at a corridor. So what is the corridor study? We're talking about College and Walnut from the bypass on the northern end to Allen Street on the southern end. It's 2.2 miles on each street, and that's four and a half miles of street total. When we say a corridor study, I was talking to one group and they're like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, great question. We are talking about the streets. We are talking about the sidewalks, street trees, motor vehicle facilities, bicycle and scooter facilities, transit facilities, outdoor seating space, outdoor merchandising space, loading and unloading, deliveries, and more. So when we talk about the street, we do picture all these things and the many activities that need to take place there. Um, how's it going with those activities right now? Uh, what's working well? What's not working well? And how do we want to improve upon that? Rosenberger explained that the process is only just starting and that it will take at least a year before any decisions are made and put into action. So the timeline is, I'm just going to say, it's a little nebulous, but I think people get very nervous that we're talking about streets that are very important in the community and we're talking about the possibility of changing those streets. So what I want people to understand is this is, a, it is a process and there's also a possibility of no change. But if we were to look at this timeline and say we have, right now we're in the existing conditions and conceptual design of the, that's the corridor study. After we develop a, a conceptual design, we still have to decide if and how to move forward. So ideally, deciding on one design, moving forward with that, and amending it into the transportation plan. So let's say we do that. That's likely seven, six months to a year from now is probably how long that would take. And then we've done that. It would take to start design of a street. We'll the, or sorry, making detailed design from a conceptual plan takes one to two years. So just in the realm of, I know it is scary, but if as a community we decide to move forward, we are looking at a years-long process, not like we're going to go change College and Walnut tomorrow, just to be clear. Rosenberger also encouraged anyone interested in learning more to attend a walk and talk where she will walk a group around the corridor and talk with them about it. Council Member Seuss Gambaluri asked Rosenberger if they could offer more sessions after the typical workday hours. Rosenberger said she will work on making some more of these options available. 
Next, during public comment, Bloomington resident and Commission on Sustainability member Matt Austin asked the council to switch from using Republic Trash Services to Rumpke when their contract with Republic expires in October. So back in 2018, the Sustainability Action Plan um, was set a goal to divert at least 40% of the volume of residential waste from being landfilled. And then in 2021, the Climate Action Plan had a goal of uh, increasing landfill solid waste diversion by 30% of the 2018 values. Unfortunately, in 2021, we saw Green Earth, a major uh, composting, a company that did a lot of composting for IU and Bloomington, shut down. And then at the end of this month, um, everybody's probably aware that um, Earthkeepers is also shutting down. So um, with these goals in mind, we are sliding backwards. So that brings me to... Um, the, the point of my comment, yesterday I and a, few, a couple council members uh, attended uh, the Rumpke opening. Okay, currently the city has a contract with Republic. Um, I am encouraging the city to uh, give their notice, 60 days notice, the contract, the one-year contract ends in October, um, to give them the 60-day notice so that uh, Rumpke can also uh, now give a bid. The reason that I believe that the city should choose Rumpke over Republic there are three main reasons um, that I have found so far. Number one, the landfill that um, Republic uses is 67 miles away. The landfill that Rumpke uses is only 35 miles away. So the carbon footprint is much less taking our uh, trash to the landfill. Number two, um, Re Republic uh, does not harvest methane from their landfill. Rumpke does. Okay. And number three, most importantly, and this is on the recycling side, if anybody's ever used broth or uh, drinks almond milk, nut milk, these are called Tetra Packs. Um, I was looking for some low-hanging fruit of ways to reduce trash going to the landfill, and I did my due diligence and found out the Republic does not recycle these. Well, what's great, another great aspect of um, Rumpke is that Rumpke does recycle these. So with our goal of reducing waste going to the landfill, um, I, uh, you guys are probably familiar with these, have probably uh, used products that use Tetra Pak. We could probably reduce our waste somewhere between 2 to 5%. So it's not a massive amount, but it is significant, and it helps us get closer to that goal, considering uh, the fact that companies that were helping us reduce our waste are no longer in business. Um, so once again... Um, I really encourage the city to put in the 60-day notice so that we can make sure that we get bids from both companies. And I encourage the city to go with Rumpke because they are definitely uh, a better choice when it comes to recycling. And the um, uh, footprint of Rumpke is much less. Thank you for your time. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be held on May 24th. In today's feature report, we have part three of an ongoing series from environmental correspondent Zero Rose. He speaks with eco-architect and sustainability pioneer Bill Brown. In today's installment, they address retrofitting existing structures like the university's historic limestone buildings, how to source sustainable materials to offset climate change, and how construction methods impact indoor air quality.
global uh, carbon emissions related to energy that the built environment takes up with some 28% in the operational emissions and about 11% in the materials and construction. So I don't know how many people realize that basically a third of energy use for heating, cooling, and powering is actually related to buildings. You know, people think about cars and larger infrastructural things, but uh, making an impact on the buildings and the homes is a pretty considerable dent in the uh, climate change issue. People are talking more and more about embodied carbon. And because it is critically important in the near term, and it's you're investing in that at the beginning of the project, and you can gradually chip away at that if you have an energy positive building. But um, you know, the embodied carbon is something you you actually look at on a solar panel as well. And then Turns out uh, in most of the research that I've seen, it takes a solar panel about two years to uh, make up for its embodied carbon in the renewable energy that it produces. Um, and if you had enough of an energy positive building, it would eventually uh, catch up and pay back its embodied carbon. But it makes more sense to try to minimize the amount of embodied carbon in the building in the first place. And again, if you have an existing building, that's a great place to start. How much of that existing building can you reuse? And how much of those existing materials can you reuse rather than replace and avoid that embodied carbon? There's also a huge amount of research now that's going into materials science. How do you make low carbon concrete? How do you make low carbon steel? And uh, amazingly, some of the industries in those fields have zero energy goals. Uh, zero carbon goals for the future. And that might rely on developing low carbon fuels like hydrogen that was produced by electrolysis through um, electricity going to PV systems that are powering the electrolysis. So essentially you have hydrogen fuel from sunlight and then you use that hydrogen fuel in the manufacturing process. That's uh, something that is in the nation stages of development, but it's certainly uh, an area of research. And we're seeing some companies now that have low carbon materials. Uh, Interface Carpet, for example, has a, a carbon neutral carpet. And uh, so some of this research has uh, resulted in some products that are already on the shelf that can be used to lower the embodied carbon. And um, Renewable materials like wood, again, especially if it's uh, wood that's grown in a sustainable forest setting, um, is quite low carbon. And there's some sequestration of carbon in the life cycle of that product. Eventually, it's going to be given up uh, if the building is torn down, the wood rots or burns, uh, that will release that carbon. But uh, you can sequester that carbon for the life of the building. If again, you want to be very careful about where that wood is coming from. And I've often thought that in Indiana, we have 5,000 certified forests that are well managed forests that contain a lot of hardwood species that, you know, are selectively harvested to maintain the health of the forest. That source of wood would be very sustainable, very uh, low embodied carbon. And uh, that's something that architects can utilize in their designs. 
And is that uh, private forests you're talking about or harvesting of the uh, public forests? Well, I was talking about the classified forests, which are um, privately owned forests. And uh, again, those are those tend to be very well managed for us. The, the certified forest owners can get certified to be FSC certified, which is uh, the most stringent forest certification. And uh, that is recognized by the lead building rating system, for example. So if you use FSC certified wood in your product, in your project, um, you get extra credit for that. But again, that is a, an avenue available to small forest owners uh, to participate in that system. And uh, are there challenges in these adaptive rehab of existing buildings on things like the insulation or uh, the materials as far as having to kind of remove, you know, old, older toxic materials? or have ways to, you know, thicken the walls? I mean, do you employ anything like some kind of a passive solar, like in a, a greenhouse attachment as a way, have kind of a solar bank on a conventional building? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I taught a class uh, in energy and environmental design at the J. Irwin Miller, J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program in Columbus and uh, one of the first assignments I gave them was to try to figure out how they would take their uh, current building, the Republic building in Columbus and turn it into a net zero energy building. And um, what the trick with that project was is that it is a, listed on the National Register of Historic Buildings. So you kind of have uh, an interesting problem with historic buildings in that you're dealing with an existing shell of the building but that existing shell also has historic value so there are certain things you may not want to do for example uh, in this historic building i'm in this this house near the iu campus i've got historic weighted wood windows behind me if we were going to retrofit this house as a net zero energy or net positive energy house we'd want to leave those windows and maybe look at uh, clear glazing storm window, maybe an interior storm, something like that, that wouldn't interfere with the look of the system that would add some insulating value. So you look at things like that, you could probably add more insulation to the attic. You look for ways maybe you could insulate the band joists in the basement. Um, but with an existing building, sometimes you don't have as much leeway or things like insula insulation or changing out the windows that you would uh, with a, a brand new building, but you could typically look at the lighting systems and upgrade the lighting. You could um, look at other ways to save energy with controls. You could electrify the systems, go with a high performance electric heat pump or uh, geothermal. One of the projects that I worked on um, as the director of sustainability is we took our e-house, which is another house in this neighborhood that had those constraints and we added insulation we did all those things then we added um, geothermal heating and cooling with uh, vertical bore wells in the back there's only like five feet of space in the back of the house to deal with and we put in two 250 foot boreholes and uh, did geothermal did uh, led lighting um, upgraded the controls to sensors and um, 
we put as much solar on the back roof of that house as we could. And we got near to net zero energy, but not quite there. Um, I've often thought uh, we need to add a back porch or something that would bring that up to energy positive, but uh, pretty close, even with an old 1932 house. So I encourage people to reuse the existing buildings and add as much solar as you can to try to bring it up to net zero or energy positive, but you've already done a great thing by preserving that embodied energy, embodied carbon in the structure, and you've reused a piece of history and um, probably saved some money in the long run. And I suppose you uh, did a lot of that on the Indiana University campus with the historic uh, limestone buildings? Yes, I use a great example of that. Um, they've done, done a number of lead gold certified buildings that were existing buildings. And um, that's a trick to pull off that um, can be done. And again, there's uh, green building rating systems that are specifically for existing buildings. And uh, you can do just operations and maintenance, or you can do major renovations. So IU has done a number of those projects that were existing limestone buildings that you really can't do a lot of changes to. But the other thing about a commercial building is they tend to be uh, ventilation dominated. Uh, you, you have a lot of ventilation air in a commercial building. You're sucking outside air in, you're, you're exhausting your conditioned air. So a lot of times the insulation is not the key thing. It's the, the ventilation rate, which is important. And, you know, the other thing that um, I've taught my architecture students is that it's not just the energy that we should worry about. It's not just the embodied carbon we should worry about. We also need to worry about the people and their health. And so sometimes you have a trade-off between, say, ventilation rate for health and ventilation rate for energy savings. And you want to try to err on the side of health and um, make those systems perform as well as you can to reduce the energy consumption. But um, I have learned that it's not a good idea to increase energy efficiency at the cost of human health because most of the cost in any building that's occupied is going to be the people in the building and their health is important. Their productivity is important and whether they come back the next day is important. So you don't want unhealthy buildings that make people sick. And um, that's another part of the puzzle that I think um, is very important that we consider. Yeah, that's definitely the probably the most often the afterthought is uh, what I call a holistic health consideration of volatile organic compounds and things that build up. If you make a place ultra tight, you're holding all of those emanations in that's coming off the furniture and uh, getting chemical buildup in, in people. Um, do you uh, address materials and things that are going into the building? Uh, for that consideration a lot? Absolutely. It's, you don't have to worry so much about ventilation if you don't have poison in the building. So uh, keeping hazardous materials out of the building uh, and then ventilating, uh, those are two key strategies. And it's become a lot easier to select materials that are not hazardous. Uh, there are various uh, material rating systems out there now, and there are lists that architects can refer to and homeowners can refer to to kind of get to those green lists and those safe lists that uh, are important to consider. 
June Taylor talks about feeding people at Community Kitchen and not just the homeless. This Bloomington nonprofit also helps hungry kids, seniors on a fixed income, and anyone else on a tight budget. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing getconnected at bloomington.in.gov. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm June Taylor with Community Kitchen. So at Community Kitchen, our role is to feed the hungry people in our community. We do that in a variety of ways. We serve people at our facilities, and we also take food throughout the county to help people who can't come to us because of transportation issues. We feed children, we help other organizations. So we try to fit all of those spots where people need food and have trouble getting it. When most people think about Community Kitchen, they first think of the homeless. And while that is a population that we serve, um, there are other levels of folks in the community who just don't have enough food. We have a lot of parents, um, young families, where the parents are both working more than one job trying to make ends meet. Senior citizens, living on Social Security, it doesn't take you very far. What we're finding right now, I think, is that many people just don't have a safety net, they don't have a savings account, or they've had to use it. And so there's nothing to fall back on. Many people have an income that doesn't really allow them to take advantage of some programs. Maybe they make too much, for instance, to be on food stamps. All those sorts of issues that make them sort of fall through the cracks. So there are a variety of issues that all involve really not having a good safety net. You know, we're doing everything we can to sort of fill in so that people don't bottom completely out. So a long time ago, when I was in high school, I didn't know that one person could make such a difference. As a teenager, I began to see maybe I could do something good. And through the years, I decided I was only working at nonprofits. And I've been with Community Kitchen for six years, and that circle for me of going back to what I found so astonishing as a teenager, like really, I could, I could make a difference, I could do something. And here I am working at this place that is making a difference in so many people's lives. And I can go home at night and realize that I'm just not lining my pockets, right? That's important to me. So the uh, frequent question that I get is, how can we help? And one of the things that I suggest, because I'm the volunteer coordinator, I think of volunteering first. So we have several shifts a day, so you can reach out to me and, and I will be happy to put you on the schedule. Oh, and the other important thing, since we're coming up on summer, is kids 10 to 13 can volunteer with an adult. 14 and older can volunteer by themselves. So if you're looking for something for your kids to do a couple hours a day and you want to get them on the, out of the house a little bit, just give me a call. Um, my phone number is 812-332-0999, or you can email me. It's june at monroecommunitykitchen, all one word, dot com. 
The other thing, uh, people can donate food to us, of course. With food donations, canned food is wonderful. If you plant a garden and you have some extra produce, we love produce in the summer. We love to serve fresh produce and fresh food as often as we can, and summer is the time for us to do that. So please don't think that six tomatoes is not enough. Six tomatoes is perfect because we will put that with other people's six tomatoes until we have enough to make a salad. Monetary donations are always welcome. People ask me sometimes, is it better for me to buy food or is it better for me to to donate money and you can buy your own food? Either thing that you do is perfect. So our website is MonroeCommunityKitchen.com and our phone number is 812-332-0999. So I'm June Taylor from Community Kitchen, and thank you for listening to my story. I hope you want to be part of our effort. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.